0: The definition of success is based on how many radiators you have in your house. Uncovering some of the most amazing stories from some of the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People podcast.
1: And here we are ready for another episode of the Wonderful People podcast. Uh, Mr Jones, tell us a little bit about your week. I'm always, I am always look forward to these stories. They're becoming the highlight of my week. So I'm, I dread to think what you've got going on this week.
2: There's a lot of very, very exciting stuff going on here in Bromley, Dan. <laughs> uh, but the weirdest thing is that today, and we're, we're now in early October, uh, today we had delivery of our Harvey Nichols Christmas Pudding. you did say
1: october you did say october
2: i did say october okay and the delivery was this morning mr postman knocked on the door with a little parcel which i opened with glee thinking i wonder what this is it's got barbara's name on it and it's a christmas pudding so and i believe we've also just ordered our kelly bronze turkey as well and yes we are (laughs) in october (laughs) <laughs> so dinner
1: at the Joneses, Christmas dinner at the Joneses, is already sorted?
2: Uh, already sorted, mate.
1: Look at that, perfect. Well, yeah. okay, sorry to bring you off your uh, your high of the Christmas turkey and the Christmas pudding. I also know that only a couple of days ago, the winner of the Influence of the Year, uh, People's Choice, so that was very, very cool, for Creative Paul Awards, was a one and only Mr.
2: Phil Jones. Well... There you go. I'm really chuffed about that, Dan. So although I, although my most interesting moments over the last few weeks have been like the Ocado delivery, the dustbin delivery, uh, the Christmas pudding delivery, uh, getting the news that I came first and I am Creative Pool Influencer of Year was like I'm really really chuffed. It's brilliant, and thank you to all of those people who actually voted for me. Really appreciate it.
1: Brilliant. You see, even in, in the amazingness of your life in Bromley, you're still influenced in the world.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to hand over to Mr. Jones himself.
2: So our guest today, Jonathan Cummings, uh, how does a 20-something-year-old lad from Essex wind up running the marketing of one of the UK's most historic membership organisations, the Institute of Directors? And more importantly, how does that person transition into leading one of the world's best-known design and advertising agencies across the whole of Asia-Pacific region. Today, we're speaking to Jonathan Cummings, VP of Landor and Fitch for Asia-Pacific, about saying yes, understanding your strengths, upending your life, and most importantly, being a panda paddler. Take it away, guys.
0: Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Dan, and hi, Phil. Hiya. I
1: want to kick off Jonathan with a question we always kick off with slight curveball question, but let's, let's
0: get going. If you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? (laughs) Great question. I mean, living here in Hong Kong as well, you know, getting stuck in a lift is a, is an an everyday possibility. So something we have kind of thought about a lot. I've always said actually all the way through my, you know, my life that this, this kind of thing, I'd, I'd love to spend some proper time with the queen, the queen of England, um, just to be be uh, specific about that just because i think with her longevity and the people she's met across the world i kind of feel that you'd get some real perspective on uh, on, on on different things you think that you know winston churchill was prime minister when she came to the throne and all the way through but i think actually in more recent times i'm, I'm kind of interested to spend some time with barack obama i just love to uh, to have a you know a, a private little chat about his perspective on uh, on on that particular part of the world and its influence on the rest of the world at the moment. Good answer.
1: Good answer, I know. Look at that. We've got ourselves uh, a well-informed and educated chap here.
2: (laughs) Jonathan, when when I met you all those years back, you were very much at the Institute of Directors. And in the role you had there, you would have been able to invite Obama because that was part, part of the role was getting the leaders from around the world to come and talk at the Albert Hall. I think, going back from memory, it was about 4,000 people then as well. It was like huge affairs. But could you tell us a little bit about your background at the Institute of Directors, what your role was and and how your open-mindedness, if you like, allowed you to move into other things?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a great role and it always took People by surprise. I mean, back then I was what, in my mid, mid to late 20s and uh, had you know quite a big role across that. You know, this hundred year old organization, this Pall Mall Gentleman's Club, you know, very much seen, I think. And, and a misconception, you know, that this was uh, a very much an old school, old school Thai kind of organization. And here I was, you know, some kind of uh, this kid from Essex, um, you know, suddenly in the, the midst of all of this and... Uh, and I think that helped me a lot, you know, that I, I didn't, you know, I, I kind of saw the opportunity with that organization, you know, the role it played in terms of helping directors, you know, people trying to run businesses, not just the big multinationals, but but startups as well. And from, you know, from, from all different sectors and all different walks of life. And there was the opportunity, as you say, you know, with, with some of the events, some of the publications, the conferences, the courses and so on, here was an opportunity for, For them and and for me equally, you know, to to learn from some of the great people around the world, whether that was, you know, sporting heroes. And I think you came to and helped us actually, I think, secure a lot of the, you know, some of the greatest sports people in the world to come and share their stories. And likewise from business and politics. And you're right, actually, I'd forgotten until you just said that. But we did have Bill Clinton come and speak and, you know, an incredible guy. Absolutely incredible guy, you know, and, and holding just on, you know, sitting on a chair on the stage of the Albert Hall with four thousand people, as you say, and just you know one of the most charismatic individuals that I've ever seen, you know, in terms of being able to to hold an audience and uh, and and really just just tell compelling stories. So that was my role really was trying to to to, to really help drive that organisation forward, you know, one of a team, but really make it as relevant as we could for for the directors of businesses. Today, and that's how, um, if you remember, I think you and I were, you know, how how I ended up getting into design was that, uh, you know, I kind of tried to identify areas that were relevant to each and every member. And, you know, leadership was one, technology was another one. But design, I felt, always was, was, you know, whoever you were, whether you're the finance director of a multinational or a small startup, design was such an important. discipline and aspect and and so we pushed hard during that period to try and you know really kind of sell the virtues and get people to understand you know the importance of designing business
2: yeah i seem to remember you you came to your first podge launch back when the podges were held at the atlantic bar and grill and you were in a room full of designers and i think quite a lot of them wanted to be sat near you to chat to you about potentially working with the iod and <laughs> you, <laughs> The Alan Fletcher of Pentagram designed the IOD logo, and you had a interesting conversation with somebody at the Pudge lunch about the logo and where the IOD is. <laughs> and, and I think in some small way, that was the initial conversation that brought you into the world of design, wasn't it?
0: Well, it was. I mean, you know, at the time, um, you know, George Cox, who became Sir George Cox, was the Director General, and and he, you know, he as he uh, chairman of the Design Council, and he was playing a big role over there. And you're absolutely right. Alan Fletcher um, designed the IOD logo, which is one of the incredible. I mean, Alan Fletcher did a lot of incredible work, and, and that mark itself is tremendous. But the thing I always loved about it was the uh, the D. Is it was you know apart from some some awesome graphic design. Um, Kind of insight that I learned from it, but the D is bigger than the I. So it was always directors before the institute. You know, it was about the individual members. Alan Fletcher always felt were more important than this hundred-year-old organisation. You know, it's only, you're only as good as the current membership, and that was the conversation I had. You're absolutely right, which uh, with with um, with somebody who uh, at uh, towards the end of a podge lunch after a, a little bit of wine had been taken um, about you know the the role of the in the contemporary age you know and a uh, slight disagreement I think on because I obviously had a picture of where I felt it you know it fitted and where we were taking it and uh, the the other individual had a slightly different picture of that and uh, as I say you know after a, a few glasses of wine it got a bit uh, a bit heated.
2: <laughs> I remember that well uh, and in fact I remember you actually saying at the time that uh, I'd love to come back to Podge, but please don't sit me next to the same person. I don't want to argue. With.
0: <laughs> yeah, and of course, uh, you did, Phil, being yourself, and uh, but that was one of those moments, right? And we ended up becoming really good friends and um, and and business partners, and uh, and you know, one of the big reasons that I'm here in Hong Kong today, as a result. So uh, fair play.
2: Can you talk to us about that? Because that's like, uh, I think the reason you are there. It, you tend to follow your nose, don't you, with these things? You're you're more of an instinctive type of person that um, would would say yes to something and then worry about how you're going to do it afterwards. Is that true? Yeah, I
0: kind of very very much. I think you're know, coming from from where I came from. Um, you know, not not from a you know, sort of a moneyed family or an educated you know family, and uh, in in that sense. And uh, I think you know one, once I got to a certain stage you know coming out the back end of university and i started seeing the, the potential around the world and i i always just wanted to explore as much of it as possible so i never had a plan you know i never said i want to be this i want to be that or i want to be anything else it was always you know if there's an opportunity there to go and explore something and do something different um you know then i'd uh, then then i'd take that opportunity that served me pretty well um i mean there's obviously parameters and principles around all of that as well but uh, but it's definitely you know been been something that uh um, that i've always followed i suppose as a principle is is just think think about you know, what what that bigger picture might be and where i might fit in what what i might be able to influence
2: how long have you actually been in hong kong now
0: so been here coming up for 12 years yeah it'll be 12, 12 years uh, in in a couple of months and so uh, yeah that was definitely a decision that uh, that served me well that i've enjoyed very much and hopefully will be here for uh, a long time to come
2: it'd be interesting for you if you tell us because when you started in Hong Kong, uh, you didn't go to an existing design agency. You actually started one within the Hong Kong community. And how many years was it before you actually became agency of the year? Just chat to us about the process of starting from scratch. No clients, no staff.
0: And, th- and then, building what I had you no had idea done. what I was doing and <laughs> no, I, was, I was um had no real agents experience you know, i joined um start judge Gill start design um you know in london um with, with the amazing you know Mike Curtis darren Whittingham Kevin Gill. Um, a few years before that and and we'd kind of ventured into Dubai and Moscow and you know I learned a lot of those guys in in such a short period of time and then when I came to Hong Kong it really just was me in a laptop but with an incredible set of credentials to to, to play with and and some you know again great mentors and teachers around you know those guys and, and others including yourself Phil and and so it kind of gave me the confidence to you know, to, to, to really just get out there and, and know that, you know, we, we could do a great job. I did have the backing of the guys in, you know, in London, but what I learned very quickly was that, you know, I needed, you know, they, they, the, the clients in Hong Kong and, and the broader region, you know, really wanted that capability. They wanted the team on the ground here. So we had, I had to work hard, I had to work fast, I had to learn fast about how to build a team, um, you know, and the right team with the right characteristics and, and so on, everything, you know, that, that you know very well um, in order to, you know, to, 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 to to one you know, winning the work is one thing, but doing it and building that reputation um, and building it locally when we didn't have a reputation, we, you know, we had some great credentials from London. That was the real challenge, um, and that was so that would have been the beginning of 2009. We started. First couple of years, we picked up a couple of big, uh, influential clients. I think is, is fine. You know, they might have been the biggest in in fee-paying terms, but they were jobs that, that really uh, got people's attention. And then 2014. We won agency of the year, uh, so just five years in, which was was great. And it was particularly good because it was the brand consultancy of the year that we actually won. And it was the first time I know that people in the industry here were really happy because it was the first time that a brand consultancy actually won that and not one of the ad agencies. So it was, you know, it's a different market here. It's a very advertising led market, or at least it was in those days. So for us to kind of come in and really develop, the kind of concept, or, or you know, really bring to the fore the concept of a brand consultancy was something I'm still to this day very proud of.
2: What about the uh, the language? Is that obviously like, <laughs> you speak English, but have you, have you learned the language since you've been over there? <laughs>
0: I'd love to answer you in, in fluent Cantonese or Mandarin there, but uh, uh, Hong Kong is a, an officially bilingual. City, so English and, and Cantonese, and uh, I've learned a little bit of Cantonese, you know, for for social purposes, and I've learned a little bit of Mandarin. But one of the things in building a business, I mean, it's one of my big regrets actually of being here, you know, that I've been here twelve years now, and if I'd really applied myself over those twelve years, um, you know, I, I would think I I could have got a lot and should have got a lot further with my language skills. But uh, I think you know, like a lot of us native English speakers, we get a little bit complacent and lazy about it, and you know, when we don't need to you know, we can get by without having the language, but I often think now, you know, just how, you know, how, how proud I'd be of myself, I think, if I'd, if I'd applied myself. There's still time, you know, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the things I haven't done quite so well in the last 12 years.
2: How about the education for the children? Because you've, your family's there, you, your children speak the language?
0: They do actually they speak fluent Cantonese and and Mandarin, they learn Mandarin at school, but they speak cantonese at uh, um, with a tutor you know to, uh, at home and you know being born here, um, you know if, even though i didn 't manage it myself i didn 't want to uh, impose the same failing on my children so uh, for them you know they 're nine years old now, um, you know, they go to Hong Kong a very international city, so they go to a, an english speaking international school, but um, you know we put the effort into to make sure that they uh, you know, they, they can speak Cantonese. And as I say, you know, they learn Mandarin at school as well. So they've got all three languages. Um, although they, uh, it's difficult for me to, to know that because they refuse to speak to me in Cantonese or Mandarin because they, uh, in their own words, what's the point, Daddy? You don't understand.
1: <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That, that's your children for us. They'll always be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the older they get, the cheekier they get.
2: Tell us something about yourself that would actually surprise people <laughs> well
0: probably, probably these days actually the fact that i've run i think it's nine or ten half marathons and uh and a full marathon as well <laughs> i think surprises a few people because uh um yeah that's i'm not sure i'm necessarily in the shape to do that these days um but that's something uh you know i think sport in general really um over the years you know i've kind of played it been in and around sport most of my life and cricket you know was was very much a uh you know, a, a, an important part of my life, you know, from childhood growing up in, in Ilford and, um, you know, all, all the way through to this day that, um, you know, still a lot of what I've learned, a lot of what shapes me um, has come from the sport of cricket as much as anything else.
2: Well, t- tell us more about that because um, you have got involved with the MCG over in Hong Kong.
0: Uh, with the Hong Kong Cricket Club, yeah, MCG's down in uh, down in Australia, but I've, I've played there. I did play at the MCG, which is uh, which is seats a hundred thousand seater stadium. You know, it's uh, it's a cathedral sport. You know, it's sort of, it's it's one of the most incredible, intimidating, and impressive um, stadium in the world. And, and I, I was lucky enough I got to play there about ten years ago, and uh, batting number three for for Hong Kong and. Um, walked out to bat all the big, so there's no one in there, 100,000 seats a stadium, but about nine people watching, but the big screens are on, and you kind of look up as you're going out, and you, you see yourself on the screen there, and you kind of think, wow, you know, looking all around this stadium, trying to picture what it must be like at the Boxing Day test match with 100,000 people all kind of baying for the Englishman, yeah, and, uh, and I thought, I'm really going to make the most of this, I'm really, you know, this, is, this is it, you know, this is the sort of pinnacle of my cricketing career, the guy came into bowl, bang, straight on the pad, how's that, umpire triggered me, Long walk back to the pavilion. So my big day at the MCG lasted uh, just a few seconds. And it's a long, it's a big stadium. It's a long walk back. So I'm walking back. I got to watch it three times on the screen, just on the walk back (laughs) to see myself getting a first ball duck. Um, but that, that was, uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was a, one of those things in life that, you know, it's just a moment that you never think you're going to get, uh, you know, e- expect to do. But the real, you know, the serious side of cricket for me was very much, it's it's one of the most inclusive sports in the world. You know, growing up in Ilford, it was the sport that brought together all the different ethnic groups, you know, all the different South, South Asian, um, you know, eth- ethnicity groups, you know, plus the, uh, um, you know, just, just everybody. Everybody played cricket and it, and it, it brought it all together, um, which was something I didn't realise. I didn't think that that was... Anything different or normal, you know, abnormal in those days. You know, it was only when I kind of moved away from East London that you realise that actually the world isn't such an inclusive place, um, and not everybody all hangs out together and plays so nicely. And cricketing heroes, Jonathan. Oh, the Ilford boys. You know, I come from Ilford, and, and one of the sort of lesser known things about Ilford—I uh, don't think that anything is much known about Ilford—is the, uh, the the sheer volume of cricketing superstars that have come from there: Graham Gooch, John Lever, Nasser Hussain. Um, you know, all uh, you know, kind of England. Uh, England superstar, Steve Waugh, one of the greatest Australian captains of all time, spent a year playing for Orford. I think that's where he, he really honed his skills. Um, and, uh, and That, many, sounds, many others that well. sounds
1: like a made-up story to me. But I'm going to, we're going
0: to... <laughs> it's absolutely true. And I think, you know, I'm sure if you read a biography of Steve Waugh somewhere, he'll probably talk about the awesome time that he had going to face his nightclub in uh, in Ganshill. Hill.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> It was, it was, uh, it was helping to form his excellent career in Elford. Who would think so? <laughs> that's brilliant. Just a kind of couple of questions, just sort of slightly, slightly off topic. And obviously, you know, we were talking just before the recording that life in Hong Kong has been, has been tough around, you know, with, with COVID-19 and you're in a second lockdown. So There's not much has been good news recently, to be perfectly frank. What was the last thing that you saw that you thought, you know what, that's truly wonderful?
0: Yeah, you're right. It's been a it's been a tough 13 months in Hong Kong because we had the Hong Kong protests last year, um, which kind of got a bit serious towards the back end of the year. Then obviously we had the first wave of COVID, Then we've had some sort of geopolitical issues, and then a, a second round of COVID. So yeah, it's not not a lot for all over the world. I think there's not been a lot that's wonderful. Um, what I have enjoyed though, yeah, you know, which is remarkably has got you know, real real traction um, in the last. Few months i'm not sure what the time scale actually is but the whole black lives matter uh movement you know, the other way that that i mean it's shocking it's shocking that it's taken to 2020 for it to to really kind of get home in the way that it has this year in the same way that kind of plastic oceans and use of disposable plastics took a long time you know sometimes these things you know take take way longer than they should and this one in particular has taken centuries you know centuries longer than it should have done but um but i think it is wonderful the traction it's got on a global basis um now and uh you know and you've got people leading the charge and leading from the front and keeping that momentum going and uh, i think that that for me is uh, is really wonderful
1: fantastic yeah no absolutely
2: enjoying our
0: podcast remember to subscribe share and leave us a review
1: and um I mean, obviously, you've lived, you know, in Hong Kong, you do global business. Tell us a little bit about Cambodia and uh, creating the world's largest dragon boat
0: team. What's that all about? <laughs> um, yeah, that was, again, some, something I think, you know, we were talking before about just seeing, well, not necessarily seeing an opportunity, but just going with the flow a little bit. And, uh, you know, when I arrived here in uh, in Hong Kong, uh, dragon boat teams are you know, quite quite a big thing that happens just just around a particular season. You know, just towards in the in the springtime, really, leading up to a what's actually a public holiday, a dragon boat. You know, which which dates back a, a very long time. Um, and but but the the dragon boat teams, you know, the people that are competing, were either kind of corporate teams. You know, where you kind of do it with your workmates, and it's all a bit serious there, or they were super serious people that sort of took track and boating really seriously as a sport you know and get up at five o'clock in the morning and go training and stuff like that which wasn't for me and a lot of my friends and a friend of mine um he said well why don't we you know form our own team and he, he did the legwork and and started and then with the three of us really that kind of started to grow and all all we wanted to do really was just have a bit of a laugh you know, with a, with some friends, uh, you know, meet new people, invite people in and just have a – enjoy that, that season, just enjoy the experience, really, of doing something a bit different. And so we um, we thought, well, let's, let's add – you know, let's not just go and drink beer and have some fun, but let's um, add a bit of a charity angle to it. So John, my friend who started it, he, uh, he worked for the WWF at the time. Uh, we called it the Panda Paddlers because um, everyone loves a panda. Everyone else is some sort of really – you know aggressive dragon name and here we, we were a bunch of guys you know called the panda paddlers you know sort of big and fat and fluffy really but uh, the thing just grew i think because really what we were about was you know hanging out socializing having a good time you know trying hard but not too hard um and then raising a little bit of money for for charity and what we did um within a year or so it just grew and grew but we we came across this amazing charity that the Cambodian Children's Fund um We'd really we're just two or three years into to their journey and you know it really is one of the uh i mean the the cambodia story you know we, we can't go into now but it really is a, a tragic story as there are in other parts of the world and but what you've got is you know some of the poorest kids in the world um and in, with the cambodian children's fund in particular you know these are kids two three years old um scavenging on the city rubbish tip to just you know for to earn a few cents um you know, which usually went to their parents. And uh, anyway, this amazing guy called Scott Neeson, who uh, um, you know, it's a story that's worth looking up in its own right. Um, but came, you know, gave up a, a life in Hollywood um, and and set up this charity. But what we realised was the money we were raising would make a material difference. You know, we could build schoolrooms and computer centres and uh, health centres and stuff with the with the money that we were raising which was incredible, incredibly motivating for us to, to do stuff. And over the last 10 years, you know, we've raised uh, a few dollars, which have hopefully gone a long way to, to transforming a lot of lives. And, and it is incredible now. Some of these kids that were rescued off the rubbish tip are now at university you know, and graduating from university. And they'll be the leaders of, um, leaders of Cambodia tomorrow. Um, and that's nice because it's, it's, it's something that we could get really close to um, rather than it just being raising a few dollars for, uh, for a charity.
2: Wow, that's from, fantastic. From Cambodia to Manchester, Jonathan. <laughs> in the days before I knew you, uh, you had a good friend, Nick Davis. And I think that little story of how we came to meet is quite interesting because pretty much your whole career has worked in a similar <laughs> way. C- can you tell that story?
0: Yeah, well, you know, when you talk about sliding doors, I when I mention sliding doors before, I mean, this is the ultimate one, really, because there's no way that this should have ever happened, really. I was, uh, as you say, I was in London. I was working for the IOD at the time. I, I remember it vividly because, as you say, my, my whole life kind of changed on a phone call, um, as many people's do, but not one like this, really. When it was Nick, you know, Nick Davis called me and said, do you want to go and watch the football tonight? And, you know, normally I'd be up for watching the football any match. You know, it doesn't matter who it is, but I'll be up that. And he said, uh, I said, yeah, who's, you know, where? Uh, you know, thinking he was going to say, you know, uh, the Arsenal or, or whatever. Um, he said in Manchester um he said it's a uh, Champions League game uh, Manchester United v Basel um you know and we've got a box uh, and uh do you, want, do you want to come and there's no way normally at took you know, whatever I think it was about 1 p.m or something normally I was going oh yeah, right, I'll just just you know uh, just drop everything get on a train and go to Manchester to watch a football team that I don't support um in a in a Champions League group game but um you know, i i was able to from a diary point of view i did have a reason to go to manchester within the next couple of weeks and so i thought well i might as well just you know throw it all in together went to to manchester i uh, had a great night i'm not sure i think you were hosting that box but i'm not sure we met that night i remember getting having a few beers with uh, your childhood best friend and your, your cousin i think um in well, law. Your brother-in-law, that was it. Yeah, I remember having a great, very drunken conversation about, um, you know, that the, the definition of success is based on how many radiators you have in your house, um, <laughs> which I still haven't quite worked out. I might, you might have to give me his number so I can give him a call, um, work yeah. it out, because I don't have any these days, which uh, is troubling me. <laughs> um, but um, but that, that was that, you know, I had a good night. Now, again, I could have left it at that. I could have left it. Thanks, Nick. You know, Nick was my friend, he was there. Um, you know, I left it at that, but you know, I didn't really get to meet you, but Nick had been telling me what a great guy you are. So, um, I, you know, working at the IOD as I did, you know, I wanted to to say thank you. And, uh, I, you know, then we had we had lunch and uh, a lot of stuff happened thereafter. So uh, I think it, it really is just, as you say, you know, take, taking the opportunity to do something a bit unconventional, I think, however small it might seem. But then it's the follow-up, you know, it's the follow-up and it's then making the most of that opportunity rather than let it just slide by.
2: Yeah. And, you've, and I think with the move to Hong Kong, it was a similar thing, wasn't it? You've just you've made a, a decision quite quickly.
0: Yeah, well, we'd, we'd opened the business in, um, in Dubai and, and Moscow we were exploring. Um, and I mean, neither of those places particularly, you know, we felt was my, my wife and I felt were as a long term, uh, you know, that, that's where we want to live for, for any significant period of time. But um, we were sort of gearing up to move to Dubai. And then my wife worked for a big law firm. Yeah, you know, in talking to them about moving internationally, they, uh, you know, they, they, they said to her, well, actually, you know, if you're, if you're looking at moving internationally, maybe a better job for you in uh, in Hong Kong. And, um, you know, it took us about 30 seconds, I think, to decide that, you know, we'd, we'd go for that, um, even though we'd never been here. My wife's actually ethnically Cantonese, but born in, as you know, Phil, but, uh, you know, born, born in Dublin, um, <laughs> and, you know, know, had, uh, knew nothing about Hong Kong. Um, so it wasn't that she had this sort of... Uh, you know lingering desire to, to come to you know explore her roots it was really you know we, we had we knew friends that lived here we knew it was a great place to live and um we just thought that sounds like an adventure that we should uh, we should go on
2: brilliant can i ask you a question with uh, landor and fitch were always us rivals um when you were looking at the top design agencies there'd be half a dozen of them that would pitch against each other for most of the big projects and then someone like WPP comes along and actually buys them up and then puts them together. How, how's that affected you?
0: It's been brilliant, actually. I mean, it's a, it's a really good move because there's still Lando and Fitch are still two separate brands because they are such strong brands in their own right. But coming together as a, as a group um, really allows us to create synergy out of the, you know, the the best of the, the two different businesses. You know, Landor coming at it very much from that as you know, that sort of really powerful corporate brand strategy, the consumer brand work that the Landor's done for years and, and many of the other, you know, on the consultancy side of the business, you know, measuring business performance you know the skills that Landor have that Fitch never had and vice versa you know Fitch in terms of its experience design capability you know its retail design capability as you know again skills that Landor never had so so where it works really well I and mean, there's some jobs that are just still Landor jobs and some jobs that are still Fitch jobs but where it works really well together is is, is brilliant and for me here in Asia and I know that sounds a bit like a, a kind of corporate boilerplate answer but it genuinely is uh, re, you know it's, it's been revelationary for me um in in just how stronger proposition it is now so it's given me a a whole new sort of lease of life I think in terms of here in Asia you know what we can do for clients you know what we're able now to deliver in terms of the skill sets that we have is is, is mind-blowing in in
2: many ways. And with somebody mm-hmm. like WVP, I think Martin Sorrell was probably at the helm when you were brought under the wing of the, of the group and all of a sudden someone like that is no longer. Oh. what does that mean to you as a you know, day-to-day or to the people running those individual businesses? Well, it,
0: it didn't, didn't affect me too much because I wasn't part of WPP for very long. And obviously being here in Hong Kong, you know, I didn't really spend too long under the kind of Martin Sorrell regime. So I guess, you know, what, what it meant was that there was a lot of change in, the first, in my first few years here because as Mark Reed came in and started to, you know, there was a period of transition. And then when Mark took over fully, you know, obviously he took a while for his um, his, his sort of strategy to become clear um, but from what I understand, you know, talking to people um, who are part of the, the old WPP, if you like, and then what we see of it being new, it's a, it's a different world. You know, Mark's doing a, a great job in terms of streamlining it. So the Landor and Fitch thing is one of many things. You know, making it a, a simpler, um, a simpler organization to understand and one where collaboration between different parts of the organization is that much easier. So here where I'm sitting at the moment, actually, is um, the new WPP campus in Hong Kong. Which just opened this year, um, although it hasn't been very full because we've been working from home mostly. But this, we've got ten floors in here. There's one. If it was full up, there'd be uh, if everyone wasn't working from home. There's fifteen hundred people, and there's a staircase that links it all together. So the the collaboration between all of the different agencies, the Ogilvies, the Greys, the BCWs, and so on, is um, you know for the short period that we had before we were all out again was phenomenal, um, and it's just a, a different culture. Um, From what I understand it was like before, where it was a little bit more, um, people were a bit more protective of their own turf and uh, more competitive with each other rather than collaborative.
2: Dan, does that remind you of your offices? Yeah, about
1: 15 floors, 1,500 people, presidents everywhere. Very, very
0: similar.
2: (laughs) Huge microphones. (laughs) Big
1: microphones, you know.
2: Yeah, I don't
0: have one of those.
1: Exactly. (laughs) You haven't got a microphone this big. That's all I'm saying. I have not. not. (laughs) No, amazing story. And I I can imagine there's there's so much around culture, you know, both just not not even in terms of your location culture, but in terms of integrating agencies and teams and that sort of thing. And I think that's a that's a big big topic to cover off. And uh, you know, is that is that something you've enjoyed doing? Is that something that you're kind of you've seen work well? Is there anything you want to say around that?
0: it is something i, I enjoy absolutely because uh, but two two different sides to that one is culture in terms of you know different nationalities and different backgrounds of individuals and here in hong kong being you know, just like london being such a cosmopolitan city i think that's why i love hong kong so much being a londoner um you know is i mean i think here um in the the 50 odd people that we have in the studio in hong kong i think we have something like 18 different nationalities you know and coming from all corners of the world and it's, that's just brilliant and asia itself you know, living here in asia and again you're know, just so many different cultures and so many different things to, to learn and understand. You can never, never, ever kind of really get on top of it. Um, and then, you know, from the business point of view, again, you land on Fitch, uh, as Phil said, you know, kind of different cultures and, and really, but, but seeing the synergy, seeing where the opportunity is and really helping everybody understand that and really helping people make the most of that and seeing that is, you know, that's a really positive thing. Um, and there's so much potential to do extraordinary work if we really create synergy out of it. You, know, you can never tire of, of having those sort of conversations with people.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. And I think you know, I, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole evolution of culture, isn't there, within a business environment you know, where things become so much more collaborative and you're genuinely trying to find synergies. Now, having said all of that, life's got complex in many ways. And uh, <laughs> one of the final questions we always ask in these, in these episodes is that as an agency, we're all about taking complex client problems and delivering wonderfully simple solutions. So what's one of life's complexities that you would like to see made simpler?
0: So <laughs> oh, global politics at the moment, if you can sort that one out, that would be, uh, that would be a result on a, on a personal level. I suppose from a brand point of view, and I thought, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about customer journeys and everything. I still don't get the insurance industry. Why is insurance so complicated and so difficult? I don't get it. You know, pages, how can you get away? We've got the most brilliant lawyers in the world and the most brilliant designers in the world and all these great strategists and everybody else. Why you still get pages and pages of tiny, tiny print. And I'm sure I know, you know, the, 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 the commercial reasons for all of that. But you kind of think when, you know, when you've had... You know, design at the forefront of creating great brands and great experiences and really sort of building brand trust for so long how this entire industry still seems to exist in a in an analog silo of its own is uh, is a mystery to me good oh, that's a big
2: one how about the journey in because your this is your home time isn't it what your eight, eight hours time difference so You've come back in seven hours at the moment,
0: yeah. So we're uh, uh, thanks to British summertime, another great invention of the British. <laughs> My journey's lovely, actually. It, I I have very lucky. Um, I live on the the on Hong kong island and uh, on the harbor front and the 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 studio you know the the w p p campus is on the harbour front and just further along the island and if i 'm being lazy there 's a bus that takes me about ten minutes and costs me eight Hong Kong dollars, which is about eighty pence at the moment, which is you know an express bus door to door that 's very nice um, but actually you know when i 'm trying to sort of decompress and solve complex problems and make things simpler, I often walk home because um, <laughs> I can walk all along the uh, all along the harbour front, which, as you you know, Phil, from when you've been here, you know, it's just one of the most spectacular sights. And after 12 years, you never get tired of of looking at the harbour front at night. And so, you know, it's a privilege to to be able to. It's a it's a longish walk, but um, you know, but to to, to particularly in the winter when it's cooler to, to walk along there really is a, a a massive opportunity to get some personal headspace.
2: I imagine with the children being the age they are, and uh, you and Lily all settled in and, and the group scenario that it's probably unlikely we're going to see you back over in the UK for quite a while, isn't it? Um,
0: what, you mean permanently? Yeah. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because of the current situation, it may be quite a while. Um, you know, obviously, with my, for my kids, their grandparents are still in, uh, uh, you know, all, all four grandparents are still alive, thankfully, and um, of theirs, and, uh, you know, in the UK. So, you know, it'll be a while between between visits for them because of the the covid situation unfortunately i'm hoping that as we get to you know into next year into 21 that 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 uh sorts itself out to some degree um in terms of moving back to the uk you know we have we have no plans um i mean not you know I, i i love uh i love visiting the uk um and the uk as a whole you know we went up to scotland uh uh, last year, for for a big road trip, take my kids to their ancestral and along going a long way back, but to their ancestral home. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually had an amazing moment. We were up in we went up to Inverness, obviously, to look for the the Loch Ness monster, and um, didn't find him, but or her. But um, and we then for me, it was a bit of an indulgence trip. We drove out to Lozymouth to the uh, RAF base because I wanted to see some fighter jets, and I thought the kids would be quite impressed because we don't see those here, thankfully. Um, Anyway, on the way back, we're driving on the Moray Firth. I just decided to drive along the coast road, and we came across a little village called Cummingstown, which I had no idea existed. Um, so I've got this brilliant sign. You know, it's just, there's a sign, you know, "Welcome to Cummingstown," and so I've got my kids, kind of, because uh, I told them, I'd been telling them that, you know, Scotland was our ancestral home. Cumming's is a Scottish name, and blah blah blah. And um, had no idea that I was going to be able to prove it so uh, so solidly by by the fact we've got a whole a whole town.
1: You should have claimed some kind of peerage or lordship over that town there and then. And just told told the children that you actually own it and that they're Scottish, old Scottish kings.
2: Yeah. Well, absolutely brilliant to talk to you, Jonathan, and um, so chuffed for you that it's all going so well over there. Amazing story.
1: yeah, thanks so much, Jonathan. That was absolutely brilliant just to hear so much of your personal story and obviously also you know agency life in a, in a global context.
0: Great to talk to you both and good to see, uh, good to see uh, Phil. You're looking so well and Dan with your great big microphone. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.